You are listening to Lighthearted, the official podcast of the United States Lighthouse Society. My name is Jeremy Dontremont. Welcome. My co-host today is Cindy Johnson, award-winning volunteer for Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses. Hi, Cindy. Hi, Jeremy. Today is October 26th, 2021, and this is episode 143 of Lighthearted. Today we'll hear part two of a three-part interview with the Irish lighthouse keeper and author Gerald Butler. Gerald is the co-author of the classic book, The Lightkeeper, A Memoir. In part two of the interview today, a lot of the focus is on the iconic Fastnet Lighthouse, especially the story of what happened in 1979 when Gerald was a keeper there during one of the worst disasters in the history of yacht racing. Let's recap a little about Gerald Butler. A third-generation lighthouse keeper on both sides, Gerald Butler went to work for the Commissioners of Irish Lights in 1969. He spent most of his career as an assistant keeper on the Bull Rock, Fastnet Rock, Old Head of Kinsale, and Mizzenhead Lighthouses. During his 21 years of service, he served on many other Irish lighthouses as well. Gerald was born in Castletown Bear as one of 15 siblings, including a twin brother. He lives today in Rathbury in West Cork and is the attendant keeper at Galleyhead Lighthouse. When he retires, he will not be replaced, so he will be the last attendant keeper of a lighthouse in Ireland. We talk about the job of attendant keeper in the third part of this interview. A new short documentary film has been produced about Gerald Butler's career as a lighthouse keeper. The film, called The Last Lightkeeper, was directed by Neve Hayes. It was selected for the International Filmmaker Festival in New York last May. Part three of my conversation with Gerald Butler will be posted in two days on Thursday, October 28th. Let's listen to part two of our conversation now. Let's talk about Skellig Michael a little bit off the southwest coast of Ireland. Uh, you mentioned it a while ago. That sounds like another, it was another really interesting assignment, interesting place to live. What was Skellig Michael like? I worked on Skellig Michael on, a num- on numerous occasions. Uh, and all of them, I was a supernumerary keeper on all of them. Skellig Michael, again, it's another big high uh, rock, reaches up another 700 feet um, out of the water. There's a monastery on it. So from the year 500 to about 1500, monks lived out on Skellig. Skellig Michael uh, is, has mentioned in the annals of the four masters, the annals of Ulster and the annals of Inish Fallon. So it's an extremely historical rock. Anyway, there were two lighthouses established on uh, Skellig Michael in the year 18, I think it was 1826. The only lighthouses on the southwest coast was, one was up on Cape Clear, and that was built in the year 1818, two on Skellig Michael in 1826, and the next one was up on uh, Loop Head, at the mouth of the River Shannon. So there was only one lighthouse on the coast. That's why they put down on the southwest coast of Ireland. That's why they put two lighthouses on it. In the year 1870, 
Inishtirith Lighthouse was built that came into, into service on the 1st of June, 1870. Four days later, the upper station on Skellig Michael was discontinued. So, but Skellig Michael, there was great climbing on it. Again, like Inishtirith, it was never covered by ice. So there's a lot of loose debris on it, which makes it dangerous for climbing. Uh, the first, one of the first keepers, a man by the name of Redmond, he lost a son and a nephew uh, down the cliff while climbing. Now, I must say to you that in that period, from 18, let's say 1810 or 1820 or whatever, up until the year 1900, or very, very close to 1900, sometimes could have slipped in over, the men, women and children lived out on these rocks. There was, um, and I don't know the name, but I remember my father, God rest him, telling me, there was a family uh, lived out on these rocks. The Irish Lights, the Commissioners of Irish Lights, used to supply educational material to the rocks. And one of them went on and became a harbour master in New York. So that's mm -hmm. a connection, if you like. Because these rocks were so big, it was possible then to have a vegetable garden, which the keepers were encouraged to have. And also they brought out goats and fowl. So they were able to have milk and meat as well with the chickens and eggs. So you were fairly well able to sustain yourself pretty well out on these rocks. And that was a big thing with the Irish lights. When they were building a lighthouse, even the like of Galley Head or Minehead or these places, there was enough land bought in the beginning in order to accommodate the keepers having a vegetable patch because life was so different back at that time. When you were going out onto these rocks, down on the southwest coast of Ireland, the sea is generally extremely rough. Now, you will get days where you'll be able to tie a boat up to the pier and step, step off, but they are so, so seldom. So... You had to be lifted out of the boat on the derrick. The derrick was swung in over then on a high platform about 50 feet over the sea, and you were dropped down on that. You sat on a round disc with a, a, a piece of timber with the rope passing up through the middle of it. You held on to the rope, and that's, that was your seat. So that was fine going on the rock, but when you were coming off the rock, you did the same thing in reverse, and you were lowered down until you were just above the highest wave. The cutter would be lying off, the cox would be getting it um, sequenced into his mind. And when he then gave the order, the crewmen would row and they'd arrive down in the trough, up they'd come in the swell, and you would let go and fall back into their arms. From 1800s onward, the families lived out on the rock. So men, women, and children were doing this. So a parent, would hold a child on their lap and they'd have their arms around the child and the child would also be holding on. And then when they'd be told to fall back, everybody would let go and fall back into the boat. Now, I've known about that since I was a child because, you know, you'd hear all these stories and all that kind of thing. But what I never knew until I was in the university in Cork, there about five years ago, I was doing a, a master's degree and when I was there, a lady, the librarian lady, she handed me a letter 
and she says, I want you to read this. So the letter was sent in to UCC. They were giving a description in the letter of how the keepers managed with an infant. Let's say an infant was born on the rock. So you couldn't hold it on your lap. You couldn't attach it to your body because if you fell, you could squash it. Or if you went into the sea, it would be beneath you and you would drown. So what they did was they would wrap the infant in um, blankets and clothes and oilskins and ropes and get as close to the landing as they could. Remembering now that the landing was uh, underwater, every wave was washing up over it. So they would then throw the child like a rugby ball. You would throw the child and the boatmen would grab it. Now, if for some reason they, they failed to grab it and the child fell into the boat, it was so well padded that it wasn't going to be hurt. If it fell into the water, it was going to float around there for quite a long time. All in all, uh, though it sounds bizarre, um, that was how they did it. And I can remember explaining this story to a gentleman on working in the BBC. And uh, when I did, he looked at me and he said, Jerry, I refuse to believe it. <laughs> so I just said, um, okay, give me an alternative. So there you are. I enjoyed your story in the book at Skellig Michael again about meeting a famous athlete there, a famous American athlete. That was quite a story. He came off, uh, Mark Spitz, we speak about. Um, he came out, he was a young man that time, and he was traveling with another gentleman. The two of them were, were together. They were staying in a hotel uh, in, in Car Daniel in County Kerry. So they came out on a tour, a boat tour in the summertime. Uh, boats were coming out, taking people out. So they called out to the Skelligs. And this man, he was an extremely handsome, good-looking man. Still is. But he was built, oh, I never, I saw him standing on the corner of the landing, ready to dive in. And he was sculpted. He was every muscle. The way I often describe it, I say, all the lumps and hollows were in their proper places. <laughs> but anyway, we didn't know anything about him. So he was just incognito, if you like. And um, he hadn't reached fame. He came out, we were messing around on the landing. He came out the second day as well. He was so impressed he came out a second time. I remember when we were down with him, uh, one of the keepers is dead and gone now since God rest him. But he, he was a strong lump of a man and he picked me up. See, I, I'm very light. I was only nine and a half stone at the time. And I'm still not much more. But he picked me up, went over to the edge of the landing and threw me in. Now, when I hit the water, I swam down as far as I could go. Just messing again, uh, experimenting. And when I was, instead of surfacing, I thought to myself, I'll swim across the landing and outward. Good big long swim. So as I was swimming, I could feel uh, underwater and I was holding my breath. I could feel the sun coming onto my back and I swam farther and I could feel the sun leaving me. So I knew now I was uh, well out and I swam, kept going as hard as I could until I reached the rocks on the far side. And when I surfaced, I just popped my head up over the water and I had an unmerciful thumping headache after doing that. 
So I've just lazily swam back again to the landing. Now I was only just um, barely stroking and paddling back. Like the, the water's about 45 feet deep at the edge of the landing. So anyway, I climbed in or swam in, climbed up the steps. And I just sat there uh, until I came around again, until I was feeling much better. And nobody said anything. There was It was just uh, uh, an incident. And nobody took any notice of it. And then I saw Mark Spitz. And he was challenging himself. He said nothing to us. And we were having great conversations with him and everything. But he said nothing to us. And he dived in. And down he went. And he started to swim across underwater. And he only got out, I'd say, maybe and just got out about half a dozen strokes at the most. And he had to come up for air. And I remember thinking, look, and I said, yes. <laughs> <laughs> However, um, he, was a, he was just one of the nicest gentlemen we ever, ever had. He was, he was just so nice. But anyway, I left uh, Skellix because I was only doing relief duty at the time. And I was sent to Roaches Point and, and uh, Gailene Fog Signal Station at Forehead. And mm-hmm. while I was there in a wooden prefab hut on my own, and I had a television, I was watching him on the Olympics and he winning medal after medal after medal. <laughs> and I was saying to myself, no, that can't be the same, man. Oh, my gosh, I never saw anyone to look so alike. And I went back then again to Skellig Michael and they told us from the hotel that, yeah, this was Mark Spitz. So, yeah, we've n- I've never had a contact with him since, but it really was just a lovely experience, really. Yeah, well, I'm sure he would remember that. It seems like it was probably a, a very uh, memorable experience for him. Yeah, well, his life, of course, there was greater things happening, winning seven medals and going back. He was really a, a superstar altogether. Yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. He was on the cover of American magazines at that time and everything. He was quite a yeah. quite a big star. Yeah. It's a privilege to have known him, to have been able to say like in England they'd say oh I met the Queen (laughs) (laughs) Ireland I'd say oh I met Mark Spitz (laughs) yeah you mentioned Bull Rock earlier uh you uh I think spent was it four years in one stretch you ended up spending at Bull Rock is that is that accurate Mm -hmm. pretty much pretty much yeah Um, uh, you talked about the unpredictable seas there being one of the memorable parts of uh, life at Bull Rock yeah I can remember one morning on the bull rock and the, the sea no the sea in these waters because they're so deep i always say the area of fastness to mizzen west and fastness to mizzen east it's there are two different oceans now i know you're coming into the celtic sea when you go east and the ground is much uh, the water is much shallower but west of there so the bull rock is west of mizzen head and uh, there's a, what we always call a Western Ocean roll. It never, ever, ever leaves it. There's a heave in the water all the time. Even if the sea is like a pond, nonetheless, this rise and fall is always in it. And I remember on Bull Rock this uh, morning, it, it was quite fine. Like the sea wasn't uh, that rough. Um, the wind wasn't strong. Well, it was strong, but it wasn't that strong. And out of nowhere, a wave popped up. Now, the rock is 200 
and 75 feet over sea level. That was to the very summit of the rock. We would have been about 180 feet, I reckon. And with that, the sea just went almost at eye level, a wave that came up almost at eye level, slipped up, swelled up, if you like, around the rock and slipped down again. And they combed all the grass as it went down and filled. We had uh, tanks in a gasometer, uh, an old gasometer that was there when the light was first established. And we used to use that water for engine cooling and it filled the tanks for us. To find out what happened there, um, there was a chap told me, it's that when the frequency changes, the frequency of the waves passing through the water change. At that point, if they come on together, they can just do that big swell away up and slip down again. It, did, it didn't do any damage or anything, but you wouldn't want to be anywhere near it because you'd surely be carried away. Was it a bull rock where you started building ship models? It was. It was. Uh, my grandfather built a, a model of a sailing ship. And I think what they used to do on the sailing ships that time, the mariners, they would build a model of a sailing ship completely out of their heads. They didn't use measurements. So he built uh, a model. We had it at home in our house uh, for as long as I can remember. And of course, it got broken. And I remember bringing it uh, out to the bull when I was appointed an assistant keeper in 1973. I brought it out there. There was no hurry on me doing it, but I really wanted to redo this model. So I started researching. That was my first uh, step. So I had to gather as much information. I didn't have any information on sailing ships and the sailing period. So I was ages and ages researching that. I went over to London with my father, God rest him, and I went on board the Cutty Sark because it's the um, plans of the Cutty Sark I was going to use. I went over, I went on the Cutty Sark and I gave an entire day on it. And I was eyeballing the um, measurements uh, just in proportion to the length of the ship, just for my own information, even though I had a set of plans acquired from Brownson and Ferguson up in Scotland. And how I did that was, I remember how, as when I went on to the bull, I had an old almanac, a nautical almanac. And I just went through the, the almanac for shipping companies in uh, London. And I wrote letter and letter and letter and to, to shipyards looking for information. And a pile of letters came back to me and what was written on, the, on it was uh, address or unknown. So I remember thinking they must have been bombed out during the Second World War. And uh, it was just interesting to, to come across all that. Anyway, I got enough information to steer me uh, to Brownson and Ferguson, where I purchased a set of plans. Uh, I set about rigging that ship differently to what my grandfather had done, but giving it a bit of reality to plans. And then I built two more models uh, of the exact same set of plans. 
Of course, people listening to the podcast can't see them, but you uh, show me a couple of uh, models behind you where you're, you're sitting there and they look uh, really beautiful. Is any of your model work displayed online anywhere by any chance? No, I, I didn't to occupy my time, my, my spare time. And I wouldn't just build a model to have it. I wanted to know all about the model. So I had to research the sailing period, which I'm still doing. And um, I had to know the why of everything and how it all happened. Someone would look at the sailing ship and they would say to me, gosh, that's absolutely beautiful. And there's a kind of a romantic, uh, a romanticism, if you like, comes into the mind. But when you read about uh, what life was like on these ships, the sailors on it, their fingernails were torn off them when they'd be hauling up the canvas. The weight of the main spar was two ton weight. The weight of the canvas when it was uh, wet with spray was uh, in the in the spread of that it was another couple of ton weight. And they had to haul all this up by hand. And sometimes it would fly away on them. And this is what would tear the fingers off them. There are things that, unless you research, you really won't know what life was like. It was anything but pleasant and romantic. It was extremely difficult. To some extent, that was also true of lighthouse keeping. I think people have romantic notions of uh, what lighthouse keeping was, <laughs> was like. I get it all the time. People say to me, oh, I bet you would have loved to be a lighthouse keeper. And yeah. I say, no, not really, but it really depends on where you were to a large extent. Yeah. And again, you see, I really believe I was cut out uh, for what I did. I worked on the southwest coast of Ireland. I think if I was stationed on the east or the northeast coast of Ireland, I don't think I'd have been uh, cut out for that because you don't get the same kind of a battering, if you like, that you get on the southwest coast. And I really mm -hmm. think that that shaped me uh, in itself. And I believe that um, I was more suitable for that. And I believe as well that um, my growing up um, shaped me for that rather than for um, a quiet, easygoing, benign type of a station. I think I might have found that extremely boring. <laughs> uh, we talked about Mark Spitz at uh, Skellig Michael having an encounter with him. Uh, when you were at Bull Rock, you had a very different kind of encounter with a very famous person. Can you tell me about that? I can indeed. One morning, there was a family from Limerick, and they had a holiday home in Derinan. And they were called Lucy, the Lucy family. And they used to come out to the rock, and we got to know them. Um, they'd come out in their boat. And anyway, one morning, they rang up, and they said, said to me, they said, what is it like, Jerry, at the bull this morning? And I said, it's absolutely beautiful. They said, okay, we're going to go out, and we're going to try and land. And I said, okay, let's see how you'll get on. So they came out and, um, and the other lad, Tux Tweedy and myself, we went down to the landing. And um, when they came in in their, in their rib and tied up, they, they managed to get out, which was, was uh, unusual. But there was a man down with them and he had a jumper and his trousers. And there was actually a hole in his jumper. And he was... <laughs> You know, in rough clothes, it was, um, as you would be if you were out in a boat, you wouldn't be with a collar and tie on you. So he was an elderly man, and I was chatting to him, and I looked around, and I noticed 
people were looking at me and laughing at me. And uh, I hadn't recognized this man. And he was the president, it was the Irish president, Carol O'Dolly, late Carol O'Dolly. And his um, good wife, Banny Dolly, uh, they, they came, they, they spent a couple of hours with us on the boat. And his wife then, uh, she had done a lot of study on mythology, on Irish mythology. And I remember she told me that time that um, the bull has a huge big cave passing through it. Uh, you could drive a, a 40 foot trawler through it. She said that it's the gate to the underworld. Uh, she said all the souls on their way to hell pass through the bottom of the bull. So um, that kind of stayed on with me a bit. And then when I was doing uh, an MA many, many years later now, one of our lecturers, he gave us a lecture in Irish mythology. So um, Irish mythological history. So I came home, wrote it up. And I remember thinking about what Banny Dalek had told us. So I remember thinking, I'm going to use this in my thesis. And um, so I researched the history of uh, the bull plus what I had known the Irish description for bull rock is uh, Tach Don or Don. So Tach is house. So it's the house of Don. And um, if it was to literally translate bull rock, it'd be um, Karig on Tarav. Tarav is bull, Karig is rock. So they'd switch, but they'd be, that's the way you would describe it. So anyway, um, I had always known it was Tachton. And um, my research then in the university, I uncovered the Miletian uh, invasion of Ireland and in around 1400 BC. So the Irish kingship can be traced from that from Milesius right back up to Noah, at the Great Flood, uh, Japhet, son of Noah, and it, the, the, they were known as the Gales. So we really, we call ourselves Celtic, but we really are the Gales. And anyway, they came down into the Mediterranean, invaded Spain, and um, built a big tower in Spain, in La Briganta, which has, ironically or coincidentally, depending on which you wish to use, has the tallest lighthouse in the world in La Corona. That's the same place. So um, from there, uh, they were able to see Ireland. So who needs satellites? But anyway, uh, it's, it's Irish myth. But they came uh, and they invaded Ireland and they defeated the Tua de Donna. Now I am fast forwarding through this history because I don't want to soak up too much of your time. On their way, when they, when they landed in uh, Kerry, or down in the south, they went up through Ireland and they met the three queens. There were the high kings and their wives were the queens. So there were three of them. And Bamba, Fola and Eru, that was the name of the three queens. So they, when they met them, the queens told them that they were, these were the sons of Milesius now, told them that they were going to be very successful. And Don was the eldest of the brothers. And Don said, we don't take our advice 
from these. We will trust in our own gods. So Eru was the, um, the queen that particular year, and she was insulted with this. Now, Eru would translate into Era, which is Ireland. But anyway, uh, she said to Don, you will have no descendants in this land. So they headed off up, met the high kings, and they told them, because the high kings had murdered their uncle, they told them that they were going to invade the country. And the high king said, look, lads, give us a break. We're not sure whether we want to go to war with you or not, or let you have the island. So they came, uh, This uh, Amergen was the poet, and Amergen spoke up and said, look, we'll go back down onto our ships, we'll pull out from the coast, for nine waves, and we'll wait for nine days. The high kings couldn't believe their good fortune. They called on their druids to bring magic down on the ships to destroy them. And that came by way of storms and tremendous fogs. So the ships were scattered, most of them were lost, and Don's ship was lost on either the bull rock or the calf rock near the bull. And his body is buried on the bull. So Don, being the eldest of the brothers, was elevated to the position of Lord of the Dead. So Don blows his trumpet every sowing, or that's the Irish, or every Halloween. And the souls of all the dead who are still with us, they come to the base of the bull rock, and Don sends them through the arch across the sea to eternity. Christian mythology tells us that it's the souls of the damned go through the book. So, as they say, you're damned if you do and damned if you don't. <laughs> <laughs> wow. But I love that um, history. And then just to finish then, uh, they did engage with the high kings and they defeated them. So the kingship of Ireland can be traced from that period right up to the Battle of Clontarf in 1014. It's all named. every bit. So it's a fantastic uh, piece of history. A lot of it is myth. And some of it is factual enough, no? Well, I love the fact you've uh, explored the uh, the history and mythology of these places, along with the uh, the science uh, behind the the seas mm -hmm. and the weather and everything. Uh, you're not you weren't satisfied to just uh, just be a lighthouse keeper, <laughs> but also a kind of a, a philosopher and a historian as well. Uh, let's get back to Fastnet, uh, and uh, you went back to Fastnet later in the in the seventies. Obviously, we have to talk about a certain event that happened in 1979. You've had many memorable experiences in your career, but uh, probably the, the one thing that stands out the most, the most memorable uh, incident that you uh, experienced was the, uh, the Fastnet disaster of 1979. And for listeners who might not know, I want to say that the, uh, the Fastnet race is a more than 700 nautical mile biennial yacht race. It starts at the Isle of Wight in England and rounds Fastnet Rock, the lighthouse, and ends in uh, Plymouth, England. goes back to 1925. So the story of the Fastnet disaster in 79, you tell in great detail in your book, but it's very moving to uh, read about. Could you tell us uh, basically what happened during that race in August 1979? The weather was absolutely beautiful uh, leading into that race. It was, there was, the wind was so calm, uh, there, was, there was no sea up, and uh, we were capped in fog. We were just, fog rolled in, and that's what fog does down there. It just keeps rolling in on top of us. And when the fog uh, cleared, now it came in on 
The race started on Saturday, uh, nothing on Sunday. We had dense fog all day Sunday. And Monday morning, uh, the wind was blowing from south, southwest, down in that direction. And the fog just cleared. And the fog cleared for no reason that we could see. Like usually uh, it would take a shift of wind and the fog would blow the fog away uh, or a riser or whatever in temperature. But none of that happened. That was okay. The next thing was there was a woman rang the rock. Her name was Mrs. Good. And I remember she said to me, I happened to pick up the phone. I was walking by the phone when it rang. And I picked it up and she said to me, she wanted to come out and anchor her yacht or her boat near the fastnet just to see the yacht surrounding. And did I think it was good enough for her to do it? And I said to her, well, yeah, it is okay. But look, I said, to be honest, we think the weather is going to deteriorate. Now, really, I didn't have any great insight that the weather was going to change other than what had happened. It would have been, it would have just put us on alert, if you like. So anyway, uh, I remember she said to me, okay, so she said, I won't go out. And I remember thinking at the time, Jeannie, somebody is doing something because of what I'm saying. So the, the wind was just barely shifting from one point to another, hovering around the same area. It was not increasing that much. It was staying down around uh, three, four, on the Beaufort scale. And I remember then in the afternoon, or the first of the yachts came and they were monsters of yachts. And for me, it was a beautiful privilege just to be able to see them because we've all heard about the Fastnet race, but to be there, I, re I reckoned I would never again get to see what I was going to see. The big yachts, they rounded early in the day. And I remember looking at them you could nearly push them away from the rock door that close. But anyway, as it went on, our radio broke down. So why our radio was important, and we used to do this on a voluntary basis. As the yachts would be rounding the fastnet, we would record their sail numbers. We would radio that to the mizzen. The keepers on the mizzen head would telephone that back to cows on the Isle of Wight the organizers so that was a, how a, a record of the race was being kept and that was a tradition it became a traditional thing from 1925 onwards as it so happened there was a, a keeper up on Inish Tirith or the Tirith and he became sick so the Irish lights had a helicopter in the area to take that man ashore to hospital and our radio broke down so they, re, they turned around, the helicopter did, and the, the keepers ashore, and they procured another radio. These radios are in the medium frequency. They would have a range of about 150 miles. So they landed another radio, flew it out, and dropped it off to us. We brought it up, plugged it into the kitchen. But I remember watching a beautiful, beautiful uh, boat approaching the fastener from the, from the north side, from the landward side. And the boat had a, a gorgeous varnished hull. It was brand spanking new. The lines of the boat were, were just breathtaking. And this is what intrigued me. Again, because of my model making, this is what was capturing me. So I went up, plugged in the radio in the kitchen up on the top, 
of the lighthouse. And this um, boat, anyway, was down at the landing or close to the landing, just off the landing. And the weather started to deteriorate. It had actually started while that boat was uh, coming out. And uh, it started to deteriorate quite rapidly. The, the barometer uh, started to plummet down. And um, the next thing, this boat was down at the landing and I was up on the balcony watching it around tea time. I didn't like it. I reckon now I was looking down and saying, that fella should get in out of here. It's too dangerous for him to be here now. So I took the binoculars. That was at six o'clock. And I put them up to my head watching that fella. And I did not take them down again until 10 o'clock that night. Because I was sure that that yacht was going to get into difficulty. Or that, I keep calling it a yacht. But it actually was a pleasure boat. That it was going to get into difficulty. But the only reason I knew it wasn't in difficulty is that the boat was managing to keep its head up into the weather, to keep the bows pointed into the weather. So it was breaking the waves and riding through them. At 10 o'clock, it was dark and sight of the boat. I couldn't see it anymore. It had moved in towards Cape Clear, about three miles east of us. And um, the headlights, the mast headlights were gone. So no, I hadn't a clue where that or whether it was in difficulty or not. So I said straight away, I'm calling the lifeboat. So I called out the Baltimore lifeboat. They launched, went to sea. And um, when they did, uh, they weren't able to find that boat either. But because they were now looking, we discontinued trying to keep an eye on that because the yachts were now starting to come. And we had to do to keep an eye on those yachts. All through the early part of the night, the weather kept worsening and worsening, stronger winds, higher seas. Remember, we had building material uh, and getting building material onto a rock meant all the gravel had to be bagged ashore into plastic bags, carried out and stored in the plastic bags on the rock. Cement, likewise, everything had to be bagged and flown out in the helicopter, dropped, and we had to secure it then. So we had all this material and a cement mixer fastened to the side of the rock. And then as the night was getting worse, we locked our storm door on the bottom so as to not let the sea in. And as the night progressed, every wave you could say was higher than the previous one. And I remember as it got dark, we had a big Aldous lamp. An Aldous lamp is used for Morse code. And we had one of these, you'd hold it up on top of your shoulder. And it was like a telescopic sight gauge you looked through, only there wasn't any telescopics in it. But whatever you were looking at, when you squeezed the trigger, that's where the ray of light shone. So it was great for reading the sail numbers. To throw a beam of light six or seven miles, it was a very powerful lamp. And I remember we were watching this uh, all during the night and the weather kept getting worse and worse. The sea then was rising. Every wave now was coming up and it was passing about 10 feet beneath our feet. We were out in the balcony with this lamp uh, reading the sail numbers. And when a wave would strike the tower, it would pass just under the balcony and totally obliterate everything beneath our feet. We could see nothing. It was, I often describe it as being in the middle of a fast flowing river. 
you could see nothing, only this horizontal plume of water and it forcefully flying horizontally across under your feet. And then when it, when the wave ceased and it cascaded down on top of whatever yachts were beneath us, it was just like as if it was pressing the yachts down into the water. The crew members, all you could see was the crew members up to their knees in water, white water, and it in severe turmoil. And they trying their best to keep the yachts, to get them round to fasten it. The danger part for us was once they rounded and um, west of the rock, there's that ledge. And once they got far west, uh, we'd be happier because if anything happened to them, on the western side, once the wind is behind them, fair enough, the wind was east now at this stage, or southeast, and it was veering around south and southwest. But once they have that wind behind them, if anything happened to them, they were in on top of the fastener in a matter of seconds. So, and it would be a disaster. So anyway, the about midnight, there was a yacht, and it was fancy to win the race. The name of the yacht was the Regardless. And the Regardless, uh, lost its rudder about somewhere between a mile and a half to two miles east of the fast. Um, the wind was behind it, so it was heading in our direction. Uh, they put off a mayday that they had lost their rudder. And this was happening to a lot of rudders because they were made of uh, carbon fibre. And carbon fibre was relatively new at that time. So the mix in the mixing of this wasn't 100% uh, perfect. It wasn't, they've improved on it since. But uh, what was happening to, and happened to a lot of the yachts, uh, the rudder was snapping and they were losing it. The way these yachts are made is you have a keel and just behind the keel, you have the rudder. The two of them are like two fins in the water. So anything from the broadside on puts tremendous pressure onto those. And that's what was happening to rudders. There was nothing to anchor or secure the rudder on the bottom. So anyway, the regardless lost its rudder. They put off a mayday. The Baltimore lifeboat abandoned what it was doing and it headed towards regardless. The Irish Navy were in the waters at the time and they had identified the yacht regardless because there's about 15 other yachts there as well. So the Baltimore lifeboat took them on tow and brought them into Baltimore. It took them a long time, the most of the night, to get them in out of it. But once that happened, we were on with listening to the tragedy happening. There's a bank called the Labadee Bank, and it's halfway between Ireland and England. The Labadee, though it is deep, it still is shallower than the ocean around it. And what was happening is like what was happening on Fastnet. When the waves were coming in onto the Labadee, they were rising in height. And these yachts were crossing over that area at the time. And this is where the most of the tragedies were happening. So a wave would rise up, take a yacht up with it, and the wave might just totally collapse. And the yacht might just come crashing down into the water. It might slip off the wave and slide down into the bottom of the trough. And some of the yachts were just going head over heels doing cartwheels, they could be bowling a, a, a wheel down the road. And more of them were being hit broadside on and capsizing and going right 360 and back up again. 
And why a lot of this was happening, because when they were in between these waves, there was no wind, or else the wind, if there was, it was blowing from a different direction. So th there was no way out. There was nothing they could do. So they were just, uh, they were really struggling for it. We were listening on the radio anyway, and some of them, a yacht would come on and they'd say, we were in such a position giving their lat and their lamb, and they'd say, we were in such a position, and we passed an upturned yacht. We can't see any sign of life there, but it's upturned and it's drifting. So then another one would come on and say, sometime later, we're after passing a yacht, it's upright, but we can't see any sign of life on board. Uh, somebody else would say, we're after passing it out and they're hanging on to the side of it. This is what was happening and this was continuous. And a yacht could not afford to stop to render assistance because if they did, uh, they too would be victims. So everybody, once you were in the race, you just had to keep going along. Even if the person beside you were, if they were losing life. You couldn't afford to stop. If you were the skipper of the yacht, you had a huge responsibility. And it was the, your crew were your responsibility. I remember uh, as the night was progressing, I saw four, there were fine big yachts and they came from the east. They were unable to round the fastlet. Now they were keeping a good way off, off the rock, but the weather had deteriorated now to such a... a rate that they couldn't uh, turn. So they had to head away in near Crookhaven or Mizzenhead, turn around in there uh, and come back out again. And they didn't lose that much time doing that, even though it would have put another maybe 20 miles onto their journey because the weather was, the wind was so strong, they were absolutely tearing through the water. So anyway, um, I remember at one stage watching the golden apple of the sun and when a wave would hit the rock and pull back and meet up with another incoming wave. At that point, you could see a white trace of foam in the water. And that, um, I remember my neighbour Pacho telling me at the galley, that is uh, supposed to be okay to navigate. If you can navigate that, it's quite safe. And I was watching the golden apple of the sun and it did that. It was absolutely breathtaking just to watch. It was massive skippering uh, to be able to steer the yacht in that weather right through that very fine patch of water and uh, get west. And um, they actually lost their rudder uh, down off Land's End later on during the night and had to be rescued. But the rescue attempt started then at daybreak. It took days for, for a couple of days for uh, the sum total of that to be accounted for. And what they, what they found was 15 of the competitors were lost and there were uh, six more lost their lives as well. Four of them were in another yacht called Bucks Fizz and they were shadowing the race. They had a press crew on board and they just disappeared. Uh, whatever happened to them, I'm unsure. And then there was another yacht unfortunately, in the area at the time, and they had no uh, involvement in the race, and those two people lost out of that. So then, during the middle of the night, I stopped shining the Aldous lamp onto the yachts, because I figured that it was such a powerful lamp that I was dazzling uh, the yacht 
the crew members on the yacht. Now, I was never sure whether I was doing that or not, but I said, look, Aaron decided to caution, turn off the light, every man for himself, let them see what they're doing. When it was all over, there was yachts still rounding. The sea now fell away very, very quickly. Once the storm had passed, the sea fell down very quickly. And what was happening, and it always happens there, is when there's a storm, and as the storm moves away, generally, uh, it, it goes up the west coast of Ireland, and it leaves the fastnet in a northwesterly airflow. Now, the airflow is an absolute savage, savage gale of wind. And that is good enough to bring the sea down. Now, the waves that I'm seeing at sea are, are 40 foot high. And then around the fastnet, it could be 60 or 80 feet high. They're knocked down very, very fast once the, the low pressure starts to move away with the northwesterly wind. So within maybe half a day, the sea was very moderate again. And uh, the following day, uh, the sea was flat calm. You wouldn't think uh, a terrible tragedy had happened, you know. It, it changed so fast. Nobody knew where it came from. It actually came from across in America. And um, it was either a typhoon or a hurricane in America. It uh, blew itself out, but not, it didn't extinguish itself. And it came across the Atlantic. Uh, undetected. It was so small, so insignificant. And then when it got down off uh, the southwest coast, up it shot, intensified and uh, caught everybody unawares. So it was, yeah, an awful tragedy. I believe it's still considered the worst uh, tragedy in offshore uh, yacht racing in history. It certainly is. There yeah. then in 2019, you wouldn't believe where time goes. But in 2019, uh, 40 years later, and it only looks like a couple of days ago. But anyway, Maria, my partner, and myself, we got an invitation to go to a service in Cowes uh, commemorating uh, loss. So we went over anyway. We were delighted with the opportunity to go. And I've always wanted to be in Cowes for the start of a yacht race. I've just always wanted to see a fascinating race starting. We went over to the service and um, what uh, struck me there is they had, somebody had a fantastic idea to bring a piece of the fascinate itself over to the church. So I can remember when the stones were taken from the fastnet, they're big chunks of rock, about the size of bigger than your kitchen door. They're erected beside the Holy Trinity Church on, on the Isle of Wight in Cowes. And um, just to stand there and touch a piece of the fastnet, it was absolutely lovely. And um, then the following morning was the beginning of the race. So we were invited by the ROC and the Royal Yacht Squadron, we were invited in onto the garden in the in their castle in Cowes, where the race starts from. So we were there for the duration of that, and it was a lovely experience for me personally, just to see that. I believe there was a painting of you uh, unveiled as part of that commemoration as well, right? Yes, there was a man 
um, an artist, I forgot to tell you this now, his name was Dan Llewellyn Hall. Dan Llewellyn Hall is a Welshman. And um, he came over to Ireland and went out to Cape Clear on holidays. And when he was out on Cape Clear, he saw the fastnet. And then he went into the museum on Cape. And there's a man there by the name of Dr. Eamon Langford. He lives up in Cork City. He's the man, the, cur the curator, he's the founder of that museum. And he gathered up all of the artifacts that are in that. And he has a tremendous history written up on the that yacht race. So, and naturally enough, he featured, um, he featured me. I gave uh, an interview years previous and um, they were streaming that on the, in the museum. So Dan contacted me. And he said to me, uh, could he come over here and do a portrait of me? And I said, you can, of course. Why wouldn't you? Sure. I said, come on over. So he came over anyway, and he did the portrait. And uh, I didn't think much of it. Like, you know, he unveiled the, the portrait in the museum. But while we were over in Cowes, he came there as well. So I had... I had good contact with Dan and he, he actually was asked to do a portrait of the queen. So he's quite good at it. But anyway, he did the portrait. And what I like about this portrait is it's not a photographic image. Okay. You can kind of make out uh, that might be Jerry Butler. I'm not sure. It's a painting. And um, this, and I, I've said it about it after we're all dead and gone. It's the next generation and generations coming after us. When they see the portrait, it's um, something to say there were keepers on the Fastnet Rock. So we had that up in the ROC in St. James's in London. So we went back again to London to that. And we had a commemoration out on Cape Clear as well. So yeah, it was well commemorated now. I was delighted to be a part of it. Go online to thelightkeeper.ie to learn more about Gerald Butler and his book. It was such a pleasure talking with Gerald Butler. Part three of the interview, as I said earlier, will be posted in two days on Thursday, October 28th. In part three, he talks about the lighthouses where he worked later in his career, about the period when he worked as a fisherman, and about his current position as attendant keeper of Galley Head Lighthouse. We also talked about his feelings about the automation and de-staffing of lighthouses. And as you might guess, uh, he had a lot of feelings about that. Mm. Well, thanks, as always, to the U.S. Lighthouse Society and its members and volunteers around the world. Check out uslhs.org to learn more. Besides part three of the interview with Gerald Butler, episode 144 will include an interview with artist Debbie Mueller, who has a new show of her lighthouse paintings opening soon. There's an old Irish proverb that says, Always remember to forget the troubles that passed away, but never forget to remember the blessings that come each day. As always, thanks for listening and keep a good light. Shine, let it shine, let it shine.